Welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast with Weekly Standard founder and editor-at-large, Bill Crystal. I'm Eric Felton. Bill, welcome. Are you locked and loaded? No, I'm back from the beach, though, and uh, I guess rested and ready. That's my alliterative. My, <laughs> tan, what is lo- rested, and tan ready. rested and ready. That was Nixon, right? That and was Nixon. Come back. Conservatives, including the Weekly Standard, have for years and years and years advocated a stronger U.S. stance toward North Korea. So are you happy with the stance the president has taken this week? It's not clear what that stance is, you know, uh, and honestly, it's also harder to carry out a tougher stance the further North Korea's program gets along. Obviously, 20 years ago, it would have been easier perhaps to take out one or two locations. Now they have some nuclear weapons. Uh, They've been able to move ahead in secrecy. Um, And so it's not so easy to know what the right thing to do is. And honestly, I'm worried. Uh, Elliot Cohen had a very good piece on this this week. Um, We don't have a commander-in-chief who's got, I would say, either the experience or judgment or temperament necessary to carry out a complex uh, combination of, of, of bluff and nego- – not bluff, but of, of, of bargaining, negotiation, threats, and so forth. If, if it were George W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, even really Bill Clinton, I might think, OK, you know, let's be tough and let's push him back and we have to be ready to use force. I just don't know if Donald Trump has thought this through in the way he should have. And, you know, these random tweets don't seem to give much confidence. But let's see where we are. It looks to me – it looks to me if you just step back – that we're not actually being particularly tougher than we were under Obama or under Bush. It's a bipartisan tradition of sort of saying, it's unacceptable for North Korea to have nuclear weapons, but then we don't really do much about it. Of course, we have uh, trade embargoes and so forth. We don't really, we're worried for good reason about military action, so we don't take it. The threat isn't even that credible. I'm not sure it is now. And what is the U.S. position? I was reading over Trump's tweets this morning. Is the U.S. position that the U.S. is that North Korea can't have nuclear weapons that can be delivered on ICBMs or that they can't threaten to use them or that they can't use them or some some murky place in between. Maybe it's okay, incidentally, for the, pl- the place in between to be murky. Maybe we don't want to be clear about what our red line is. I can make that case as a matter of foreign policy strategy, too. Anyway, this is a long way of saying... Strategic ambiguity. Yeah, it's a long way of saying that it's very complex. Uh, one would wish that the president... Uh, would be a little less flip about it and a little less macho and chest uh, chest thumping. One would wish that someone like Seb Gorka, the second-tier White, ha- White House aide who's not involved in the National Security Council, I think knows nothing particularly about what's being recommended to the president by Mattis or McMaster or Tillerson, it would, it would go on TV and just, you know, expostulate uh, in a, you know, with a lot of bravado. One would but wish he that makes the best faces. He is amazing. No, but I mean, really, you know, it's one thing. It's fun. It's, fun. it's kind of a lively White House. It's fun to have them on Fox when nothing much is at stake or if they're beating up Mitch McConnell. Fine. Who cares? Actually, in a serious crisis with allies, Japan and South Korea and others watching intently with Russia and China, trying to figure out how to play this themselves with North Korea, whatever's going through their minds. And, you know, that is a place. I mean, I was in the first Bush White House in the middle. It's one. Th- I mean, they were tight, much tighter anyway. People like me didn't go on TV and talk about things we didn't know much about, but talk about go on TV and talk much at all, frankly. But the idea that any of us would have gone on when Jim Baker or Dick Cheney, the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense, were in the middle of a serious crisis, let's say the first Gulf War or the run-up to that, and just say, you know, I think we could really be, we need to be really tough with Saddam. I mean, it's just unthinkable. And it really is damaging, I think, to our ability to 
convince our allies we know what we're doing, convince North Korea that maybe they should back off and so forth. So I, I'm, I'm worried that at the end of the day, we kind of do nothing, back off, it looks like bluster, and we look a little weaker as a result of it all. Although there did seem to be one positive development of China in its news, state newspaper saying that uh, it wouldn't necessarily back North Korea if North Korea were the aggressor in a confrontation with the U.S. Yeah, and that I don't that I think that's positive, and it may well be that some of that has resulted back channel talks with Secretary of State Tillerson or others. But again, one would just it's important in these crises, I think, to sort of convey a sense of organization and competence. Um, even if behind the scenes it always is a little chaotic. And that's where I come back to just this is a trivial thing in a way. Who cares if Seb Gorka's on Fox? But it is. it just helps convey the sense that it's amateur hour and people are pulling and uh, tugging on the president's kind of instincts instead of sitting down with the president for a few, several hours on end and figuring out an actual policy and strategy and how to implement it. Does John Kelly, as chief of staff, does he have control over the communication shop and, by extension, have control over who in the administration goes on TV? Well, that's a good question. I mean, in any normal White House, of course, the answer would be yes. In any normal administration, especially if you're in the middle of a crisis, even a smaller crisis than a possible showdown with North Korea, you know, every people going on TV would be cleared through a central, through the communication shop in the White House, which in turn, if things were really controversial, would probably walk down the hall to the chief of staff's office and say, hey, they want, you know, the Fox show at eight wants so-and-so and the CNN show at nine wants so-and-so. Do we want anyone out? Do we want just one guy out? Do we have talking points ready? What should we be at? Should we have a conference call at 745 to make sure everyone's on the same page? One doesn't have much of a sense that this White House is doing that. As a journalist, you hate people having talking points and sticking to them. But in terms of diplomacy and governance, there's something to be said for the discipline of talking points and everyone being on the same page and the process of thinking through what those points are and and how to get them out. Absolutely. And really, again, the audience here is not so much fine. A couple of million people, Americans are watching Fox at the end of the day. They're going to, you know, we're going to all support whatever the American government does pretty much. Or or if there's a debate in Congress, we'll make up our minds. So the real audience here is people in North Korea, people in Japan, elsewhere who really are waiting to hear uh, from the U.S. government sort of formally and publicly uh, what what the position is. I mean, obviously, domestic, you know, explaining things to the public is important too in a democracy. I don't mean to to minimize that. One other thing I would add, I, I mentioned in passing, uh, Congress maybe, or maybe I didn't, but no one's mentioned Congress. What about Congress? I mean, now they're in, they're out of session in August, but it seems to me if this is a real crisis, and Seb Gorka said Cuban Missile Crisis is an analogy. Shouldn't Congress come in and debate this? If we're going to actually think about it, I'm not necessarily against it, but if we're going to think about a preemptive uh, strike on another nation, um, maybe it's very, it could well be, you know, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a shrinking violet about these things, it could well be justified, but shouldn't we have some congressional debate and briefing of congressional leadership, the intelligence committees, the leaders of both parties, uh, to try to get them on board? So on the one hand, it's supposed to be a big crisis, and Trump makes it sound like it's a huge crisis, but he's playing golf, and people are on their, so far as one can tell, cabinet secretaries are on their normal vacations, basically, or travel schedules, and Congress is all over the place, is, is out of town. Well, the president wasn't ignoring Congress altogether. He was busy giving uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell the Kim Jong-un treatment. Yeah, he seems to be annoyed that Mitch McConnell didn't deliver on health care. And uh, look, you know what? He may well be right to be annoyed at the congressional Republicans. I think they've done a lot 
they have a fair amount to answer for in terms of, uh, well, many, many terms. On the other hand, if you're the president of the United States and you have a narrow majority, uh, a majority, your party does control both houses, that's a great thing. I've been in administrations where you didn't control both or either house, uh, and suddenly, you know, you're dealing with a very different deck of cards. Uh, Mitch McConnell's gotten almost everyone. Donald Trump wanted confirmed, confirmed, couldn't quite get the health care bill through, uh, but Donald Trump has an awful lot of nominees and an awful lot of legislation pending. I wouldn't pick a public fight. Whatever privately, you might have one of your guys sit down with McConnell and say, hey, we got to do better on this, this, and this. I would not pick a public fight with him, especially when it's not really about anything. It's just sort of denigrating him. And I wonder if bigger strategic issues come into play here, and in particular, the president's strategy for dealing with the Mueller investigation. If you've got a special counsel and FBI actively investigating something that could conceivably lead to impeachment proceedings. Don't you need every friend you can get in the Senate? Don't you need to be now cultivating good relations with the people that you're going to need to rely on should there be bad stuff that comes out of the special counsel's investigation? No, it's a good point, Eric. You know, I was talking with a Clinton person a couple of weeks ago, someone who served in the Bill Clinton White House, and it was actually not about any of this. It was about a policy issue. And I said, why didn't you guys go further on some issue? It was a kind of centrist initiative that Bill Clinton was interested in. And he said, once the Lewinsky story broke in 98, we were just no, we were not going to offend the congressional Democrats on anything. And we weren't going to offend them stylistically. We weren't going to offend them in terms of nominees or appointments. And we weren't going to offend them by taking a position on a certain public policy issue that half of them thought was a kind of a sellout or, or that they just didn't agree with. And so that was unfortunate in that case, probably. But Clinton saw that he was being investigated by Ken Starr. At some point, there could be a vote. It would make a big difference if the House vote was a partisan vote and he was impeached as he was by, what, 15, 20 votes, something like that, as opposed to 100, let's say, getting some, you know, some half the Democrats. And obviously, when it came to the Senate vote, he held, I think, almost I think literally every Democrat uh, for acquittal. So uh, maybe Trump doesn't take it that seriously. Maybe he just assumes that as long as he's got his base of support in the country, that the Republicans won't, at least won't desert him. But it is a little striking that he's not thinking, uh, thinking ahead quite in the way that Bill Clinton did. Well, Roger Stone is saying that um, that Paul Manafort would never testify against the president. That's that's some cold comfort, I guess. I mean, that was very interesting. Someone pointed out, uh, commenting on it, that it's kind of a funny thing to say. I mean, if if, if there's no crime, if if the guy is, if no one's guilty of anything, I don't think you'd normally say, "Well, someone won't testify against you." You'd right. say, "Well, there's no crime. There's no problem. He has nothing to say. There's no reason he would have anything to be able to testify about." They sort of he won't testify against you is a little more of a locution that you hear in you know mob movies right where the people are guilty and then the question is will you know Joey turn on Tommy and no Joey's not going to testify against him but the implication always then is that he has something to testify against him about so who knows if Stone really meant that or not who knows what indirect signals are going back and forth between Trump and Manafort through Stone or through others I was very struck when Trump's lawyer attacked. Mueller for his uh, pre-dawn raid on Manafort, on Manafort, which happened of late residence, July. Which happened late in July, but was, was reported, oh, I guess, earlier week, this yeah. week. Um, you know, your own lawyer, I mean, if Manafort's lawyer wants to say this was inappropriate, that's obviously up to Manafort and his lawyer. Uh, but it's a little weird for a lawyer for a third party to weigh in. Presumably, Trump's lawyer isn't privy to all the reasons the special counsel might have wanted or felt it was necessary to do this. He's maybe not even privy to Manafort's own reaction or thinking to it struck me as a signal 
that Trump is with Manafort, you know, and that he was anti- Trump's with Manafort and against Mueller, and maybe a signal to Manafort that if he hangs tough, there might be a pardon coming. I may be overinterpreting that, but it was such. I talked to a couple of lawyers about it, and they both said, I mean, it's just a standard rule of kind of legal practice. You know, don't pick fights that you don't need to. If you have to pick a fight on behalf of your own client, absolutely fight very, very hard. But picking a fight on behalf of a third party when you don't really know what might have gone on privately between that third party and the special counsel uh, seems unusual, to say the least. Now, here at the Crystal Clear podcast, there's been no shortage of, uh, of criticism of uh, this presidency and this president. So, too, at the New York Times. But the New York Times has this weekend an interesting essay by a couple of professors, uh, Yale and uh, Oxford professor, the title of which is, Trump isn't a threat to our democracy, hysteria is. And it seems to be addressing the more the complaints on the left that is at every turn, the democracy is coming to an end, um, and that, uh, that that may be a bit overblown. What, what do you make of that? Look, I think Trump is problematic as president, but obviously a lot of the critics are just are hysterical, or some of the critics are hysterical, and can't tell serious problems from trivial ones and make it sound as if, you know, a new uh, dark night is descending on America tomorrow and we're going to lose all Democracy our... dies in darkness. Yeah, right. Well, I hadn't thought of that, but that's absolutely <laughs> right. We're going to lose all of our freedoms. I think people are too... I think the institutions are strong, the courts, the media... Uh, private sector, all the, the Congress uh, aren't going anywhere, and that just limits what Trump can do. My concern, and maybe this is shaped a little too much by having been in the White House for four years and in the executive branch for seven, is just the apparent chaos of the White House, the lack of seriousness and policy making, especially in foreign policy. Uh, even though there, I think Kelly, obviously McMaster, are trying to do their best, um, but a president just doesn't seem to understand why it would be important to have a serious process in place. Um, the risks you run with that. We may avoid paying a price for it, honestly, or we may pay a marginal or, or, or medium price. It's sort of like having a badly run business. It could still do fairly well if the product's good and, and if you kind of you know, can improvise and you know, catch up with things at the last minute. It's just a little chaotic, Rube Goldberg, but you know what? You make it through, and that's true of a lot of things in life. I'm most nervous about that in the White House in terms of foreign policy, where I do think inadvertent, just foolish statements, misunderstandings, lack of thinking things through, that the cost of that can be can be much greater than, you know, having a silly fight with Mitch McConnell. That's unfortunate, maybe if you're a Republican in terms of advancing the Republican legislative agenda, but ultimately the country is not going to pay much of a price, I don't think, for that. Well, we've only got a couple of minutes left here on the Crystal Clear podcast, but I noticed this week that you um, took up some Twitter bait that asked people to list their five favorite works of fiction, uh, literary works. And I noticed on there um, that you had a play by William Shakespeare that was not one that people would obviously choose, but which happens to be my favorite play. Oh, I did. That's funny. Shakespeare, yeah. Measure for Measure. And I didn't want to let the podcast get by without uh, asking you what it is that makes for you Measure for Measure the essential Shakespeare play. So someone had, had tweeted just, you know, what are your five favorite books? I don't think it was fiction. I think it was just five favorite books. And it sort of said, don't don't overthink this. Just tell us the ones that come, which was a good 
caution because otherwise everyone's going to sit around thinking and do right. you know what's going to make me look good well it's going to be everything will be to- <laughs> everything will be Tolstoy and Dusty and, and Shakespeare and Plato or something and so I can't even remember well, if I, I talk Tuckville's Democracy in America I remember putting verse and and uh, uh, Jane Austen Persuasion. Persuasion Persuasion is my favorite of her novels which maybe is a little Pride uh, and Prejudice probably has, has, has more fans um, no I've I liked I've always been fascinated by Measure for Measure. It's a very political play, very Machiavellian play, and I think actually is influenced by Shakespeare's having read Machiavelli, which I think we have some evidence he did, maybe in English translation, but it was around at the time. He was already a famous character. Uh, and so uh, it's Machiavelli about a play called Mandragola, which I think may have influenced Shakespeare in Measure for Measure. But in any case, it's a very, the plot it's one of those plots where there's a plot within the plot. You know what I mean? It's an actual plot by the Duke uh, to try to bring – reform a city that's – Vienna that's uh, kind of decadent, you might say, and has loose morals. And it shows the dangers of, of, of that reform. And also the Duke seems to have his own interests, romantic interests here. So very, very – I've always just found it kind of fascinating. I actually tried to teach it when I was teaching at Penn. I think we had a little reading group or something. Maybe it was an informal seminar. I, I can't say I figured it out a huge amount. About it, I mean, I think I saw a few things, but anyway, I, I I would not, I don't know enough to say this is Shakespeare's best play or most important play or anything like that. It's just been one I've always found fascinating. And all about decency, questions of decency, and uh, and uh, having one's own morals and perhaps to a fault. Right. I mean, Angelo is uh, this Puritan type, you might say, who turns out to be a terrible hypocrite. And uh, it's it's a very worldly play, and uh, very and very much. I mean, obviously set back in Vienna in whatever 16th century or something, but is uh, you know one of the ones that is much more much more easily transposed to to today. I mean, all the, all the issues are are alive today, or, or most of them at least. All right, that's it for the Crystal Clear podcast this week. Be sure to tune in every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much, Bill. I'm My Eric pleasure, Felton. Eric. Read measure for, everyone can read Measure for Measure. And that's your, and that's get your well, homework for Get well-educated this, 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 <laughs> well this weekend. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.